Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Dave Christensen, the longtime CEO of the billion-dollar agricultural co-op MKC, and by the way, the star of Chapter 8 of my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work. Welcome to The Indispensables. I, I've got Dave Christensen here today. Uh, it's a special pleasure because he is a longtime client. Uh, he spent over 40 years in the agricultural cooperative system and was the president and CEO of MKC for a number of years, which is uh, how I got to know him. Uh, I also consider him a role model and a mentor. He's he's an extraordinary fellow. I'm, I'm delighted for everyone to meet him. Dave Christensen, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. You're way too kind. I appreciate being here. I'm so glad you're here. And I got to say, you know, I work with a lot of organizations. And one of the things that's striking about MKC is, which is an agricultural cooperative, a zillion dollar company or whatever. But one of the things I find so striking is when you were the CEO, the way that people would talk about you, uh, the way that people would talk about you when you're not around. And just the admiration people have for you. And now I've had the opportunity to work for the organization a bit since you've been gone. And they're still talking about you. And, and, and you're such a, a humble person, in my opinion. How do you strike that balance of uh, having such a strong leadership impact without being a ton of bricks? You know, I think the key to, again, having a team and building a team, developing a team is, is number one, you really have to have a great vision uh, for what you want to accomplish in the future. Share it with everybody and, and make sure that you're sincere. And it can't come through, you know, as as being uh, insincere. Let's just say that you really have to have a sincere concern about, you know, how your people are doing and, and, and get yourself involved with them to the best of your ability. And then, you know, again, having that plan and making sure that they understand really where they fit in that plan, that really helped me help my people be successful. And as long as you're concerned with their success, I think they'll work. No, I know they work hard for you, but I really think that that's what ingratiates you to your people and helps your people um, want to do their best for you. And so uh, just um, how long were you CEO at MKC? Just over 16 years. And and it's it's not a zillion dollar company, but it is like hundreds of millions, right? Yeah, it's it's getting pretty close to a billion probably today. We've, we, at the end, we put together a couple of pretty nice mergers right before I left, and they're continued down that path. It's a culture that they have in the organization to continue to grow, and they are continuing to grow, and they've got great leadership in place. So, yeah, they're, they're a growing organization, which is easy to attract people typically to a progressive growing organization. So you were CEO for 16 years. My observation is that even with such low unemployment, with a super competitive job market, 
you had people who wanted to stick with you and, and stay part of your team. You did not have high turnover, especially among the people who had some access to you, who either reported to you or reported to the people who reported to you, or even who reported to the people who reported to the people who reported to you. What do you attribute that to? How did you do that? You know, Bruce, I think the biggest thing that I probably would attribute that to would, would be, again, having that plan creating a culture in your organization to where, which culture and you know is better than I, but culture is just what you do and what you say every day. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's just what you live and you breathe. And, and for me, it was about, it was more about what you promoted and what you tolerated. Yeah, that's powerful. What you promote and what you tolerate. Say more about that. People sometimes, you know, they'll talk to you and they'll make a comment about, gosh, we don't have a culture. We need to develop a culture. And, and, and I always say, and when I'm working with people today, is you have a culture. Everybody has a culture. It may just not be you driving it. I just think it's so critical that you establish what you're going to promote and, or what you're going to say and do every day. And then you're very clear about what you're going to tolerate. And I don't care what it is, whether it's safety or whether it's uh, customer service, pick pick anything that, that you set up parameters around what good looks like. It is so critical that you say, look, here's what we're going to tolerate. And if, if you can't live with this, then you're probably not good for our team. People really do appreciate that. They, they appreciate the clarity. When you can come to work and you feel like you're part of something, you're part of something bigger than you, and and, and you're, clearly your supervisor knows what you do every day, your supervisor gets you in, in, involved in helping achieve the company objectives. I think that's what builds that team that really wants to, to achieve. That, and people like being, again, they like being part of something that's achieving something. So, so it wasn't a huge challenge for us to keep the people around us, but you kept them informed. You, you were sincere about it. That, I think that's what really helped us retain our top talent. But when you say, so one of the things I love about what you're saying is, and you say it as if, you know, it's natural uh, that what you're going to promote, let's just say safety and customer service. Now, what, what I love about those is that they're so simple. And to so many people, they seem obvious. And those same folks who say to you, we don't have a culture. And then you're like, oh, we do. Uh, and, and, it's, or, and let's just say it's organized around customer service and safety. And those things seem so simple. But if you think about it, safety, what message does that send? that your, the well-being of your employees is important to you and that you are not going to put them at risk and you're not going to let anyone put them at risk. And same with customer service. We're going to take care of these folks. I mean, those two things, they seem so obvious and yet you go, everywhere I go, I see organizations that do not have a sufficient commitment to safety or somehow they're not executing on customer service. And so it can be that simple, right? Yeah, it's not complicated at all. And I think people have a tendency to overcomplicate virtually everything today. And so for us, we always boiled it down. So it had to be simple enough for me to understand it. I think that was the key. That's where we started. And so we, you could really boil that down though. And, 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 and again, put parameters around it. Make sure everybody understood what good looked like. I think that's so many times when we, we talk about, well, be safe, and then we don't tell them what safe looks like. And then we don't, you know, if they slip, we don't say anything because, oh, my gosh, you know, somebody might quit or they might leave or it might hurt their feelings. Well, when it comes to safety or customer service is another good example, when it came to those things, almost good enough wasn't good enough. 
And, and so again, that just permeates who you are as an organization and everybody knows. So it's not it's the frontline person all the way to the CEO. I mean, we knew what was expected. We knew what good looked like. So yeah, it was, it became come pretty easy for us. I like that you emphasize what you will tolerate, which by implication is what you will not tolerate. And and it's funny because you and you just drew the the you just connected the dots that sometimes when somebody doesn't meet a standard, uh, their managers, especially in a low unemployment environment, who are afraid to confront them because they might quit or we might have to remove them. Right. So what role does having high standards and not tolerating a violation of those standards? What role does that play in retention? Because it's a, a tiny bit counterintuitive for some people, but but I, I, I think you're on to something. Well, for your good people, it played a huge role in retention. People will weed themselves out. So it's it, it's not for everybody. I loved years ago, Nebraska had a great campaign up there and said, Nebraska, it's not for everybody. Well, we kind of talked about that. MKC, it was not for everybody. I mean, if, <clears throat> if you don't have... You know, if you don't have high standards, if you're not willing to, if you don't come to the table with values and integrity, many times you're just probably not going to fit there. But for the good people, they didn't want to be around people that didn't think about these things all the time. It was important for people when you think about whether it's, and I don't care whether it's safety or courtesy or image renovation, that was our four keys that we used all the time. People that didn't think about that, people that didn't live it and breathe it would find themselves seeking employment someplace else. So typically, we didn't have to weed them out. They typically couldn't stand the peer pressure. And so that the 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 people who stand out, the people who stick out like a sore thumb are are the ones who are not meeting the standards. I always say like, you know, one one uh, low performer gets paid, it's a waste of a paycheck, uh, causes problems that high performers have to fix, sends a message that low performers might be an option. And high performers hate that. You say it perfectly well, and I've, I've heard that, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that high performers hate that, and high performers will s- seek employment where they can be with other high performers. So how do you tell the difference when you're drawing somebody closer to your inner circle? When you're, for example, I mean, you were a CEO for 16 years, um, uh, you built this uh organization, double, triple, quadrupled, whatever it's, it's revenue. And, and you've got this core group around you. And my recollection is when you were threatening to retire, people were nervous. Um, I mean, some people were like, maybe I'll get to be the boss, but a lot of people were nervous, right? How do you know you have the right people around you? So how do you draw the right talent? How do you identify them? And then how do you prepare them for that kind of a transition? That's a big question. The, the first and foremost, you start with really good people. In most industries, you can develop or train or whatever you, terminology you want to use. You can you can do that with anybody if they if you start with good people and, and and people that already bring to the table good core values. They bring integrity. They bring they bring a commitment to task. These are good people to start with. Then you start introducing them to MKC, if you will, or introducing them. Maybe it's to the ag industry. We've got a number of people there that had zero ag experience when they started. They were just good people and and people that actually cared about other people. How can you tell? What do you look for? 
one of the things that I guess I looked for is give me give me some examples of projects that you've worked on in the past where you had to work in difficult situations. How you were successful. Let's talk about where you maybe you weren't successful. So let's let's have those discussions or as one way to identify people that may be good for your company. Another thing is just again, you get the opportunity, frankly, I did not hire a lot of people to initially surround me that I had no background with at all, or I didn't know somebody that had a background with a little bit. It was it was important to me because I building a, a circle of influence or a circle of connections that you have around the industry and, and outside your industry is, is, I think, is critical to the success of any company. But then you can fall back and rely on other people that you value their opinion. You can ask them some questions about, tell, tell me about this person and, and tell me about their background. And those are the kind of people that seem to fit best into our organization. Again, it's like, okay, but there's references and then there's references, right? So it's it's got to be people you trust, people you know, people you know will be honest with you. Absolutely. I mean, these are people that I highly value their opinion. You know, we used headhunters occasionally, but typically it was somebody making a reference. Somebody would tell us, hey, look, I think this person would be really a good fit into your organization. And and so then you'd bring them in and get to know them a little bit. And, and again, it starts with having good people. Good people can do about it anything once they decide that, oh my gosh, this is something I could get behind. This is something I could get excited about working for this organization. As long as you have a, the vision, I guess, I think that's the biggest key for me was being able to share your vision to the point where people got excited about helping achieve that and they wanted to be part of that. I think that was critical for our success was bringing in people that could all get behind that vision and, and help establish the objectives to, to hit it. And what does that kind of vision look like? Um, is is it grow the business? Is it so? You said you had four pillars, right? What were the four pillars? Safety, courtesy, image, and innovation. And we stole that idea too. We didn't steal those specific pillars, but we stole the idea because every day when your feet hit the floor, you knew that those were the most important things that you were going to work on that day, and everything else kind of fed up and fed through those four keys to our success. So whether it was our strategic intent statement or whether it was the, any objectives that we may have or any action plans that were going to help us achieve those objectives, every one of them were looked at through the lens of those four keys. Yeah. And there, and, and it's, it's, it's deeper than it sounds because, you know, courtesy, for example, um, it gives you this anchor of like, that's just how people are supposed to treat each other. And again, it seems so basic, but if courtesy is a landmark of your culture, then you don't tolerate bullying, right? You don't tolerate cliques, ringleaders. You don't tolerate uh, people who, I'm just having a bad day today, leave me alone. And I love that you say image because it's funny. One of the things that I've noticed about MKC facilities as opposed to others, they're clean as a whistle and they're orderly and well-organized and it makes people feel like they're in a professional environment. Yes, I think sometimes you you know agriculture gets painted with a broad brush, and we get the opportunity to have mud on our shoes and you know a little manure and and, and dirt in places that you shouldn't probably have. But but for us, image was 
more than just facilities. It was the way you carried yourself. It was the way you acted at meetings. It was the, it was the way you communicated. It was all aspects, any touch point, any customer touch point or any, any potential future employee touch point. We thought about how are we coming across? We, we, we absolutely concerned ourselves with that every minute of every day because image was important, whether it was, it was print media or whether it was uh, advertising or whether it was any type of communication that we may send out through digital media. Everything that's going to have an impact on your image was something that we thought about and thought about with regularity. A lot of people, uh, I, I'm fond of telling people like, man, these agricultural co-ops, these are big, hundreds of million, billion dollar businesses. But you also serve on on boards, right? You serve on boards of insurance companies. Uh, you also have a lot of other kinds of uh, executive experience. And, and maybe that's where it came from. But MKC is striking in its um, very professional presentation. And I don't think it's an accident that you made one of the pillars image. This is how we're going to present ourselves. No, it was it was very intentional because again, that's you know the customer or the future employee or the prospective vendor or whomever it is. They they believe what you know what they see, what they hear, what they read about you, and and so it's critical for us to manage that thought process to the best of our ability. Now, there's a lot of people telling our story sometimes better than we did, and that was why we really had to get in there and make sure that we did uh, do a good job of communicating and make sure that we get the opportunity to tell our story rather than letting somebody else do it. So, yeah, image image was one of our four keys uh, for a reason. And, and, and you're now chairman of a pretty significant financial services organization, right? United Benefits Group and the Cooperative Retirement Plan. Yeah, it is. It's um, we're dancing around four billion dollars worth of cooperative employees retirement funds. So <clears throat> I have the luxury of serving a, as chairman of. It's a critical part of our business. We're one of the few businesses today that still has a pension plan. So it's guaranteed lifetime income for employees. But so it's interesting because your skill set. I mean, obviously you're running this almost billion dollar business. And so people don't realize the way you have to be able to navigate between literally people who are loading grain and people who are out, you know, spreading fertilizer and people who are also uh, handling hundred million dollar lines of credit and then, you know, managing mergers and acquisitions and dealing with IT systems. And, but the co-op is such a large complex organization and now you're surrounded by all these high finance types. What's that like? Is it a change? Of, is it a change of mood? No, you, you really, you really find that the same challenges that you faced in, in dealing with the uh, guy loading the grains, a lot of times you face with a wall street banker. It's about clarity. It's about communication. It's about sharing your goals and objectives. It's about making sure that we have a plan and that we're going to work our plan and that, and that we are willing to share our plan with anybody. Here's the vision. Here's where we're heading. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Here's what we want to accomplish. Getting people to help you. People will help you achieve your objectives if you get out of their way and let them many times. So, and I don't care, again, I don't care if you're talking about the young man loading fertilizer or the young lady working at the, at the scale house um, all the way up to uh, the people managing billions of dollars. These people will help you. They just need to know what you want to accomplish. 
and they're, they're human beings, right? People are, uh, people are peculiar and everybody's different, but they are people. I have the feeling that one of the things that's central, I've always gotten the feeling, partly from the way I watch you treat people. Do you have a philosophy about people? What is it about? You, you seem to have a really, I mean, obviously you're a very personable guy and you're, you're fun to talk to and stuff, but what's your philosophy about people? I boil things down pretty simple for me. I mean, it's be sincere, be truthful, be the same guy for the most part all the time. It's it, you're not going to get a lot of surprises. If I think when you start surprising people and surprising employees, and if they didn't know what to expect, all of a sudden you, you surprise people and it works on your relationship. Let's just say that it doesn't it doesn't help you establish that relationship that you have. So if you're sincere and you're truthful, if you're sincere about helping them achieve their goals and objectives. I really think that that matters. Um, every day, if you walk that talk, you don't you don't just talk about what's good. Again, you 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 live the live the plan uh, and be inclusive. I I think uh, again, be inclusive to the best of your ability. There, you know, there's times in a position as a CEO or whatever, there's things that you can't share. But but virtually everything else, you're going to make sure that people know what's to expect. They know what's going on. So I, I really think that that's what helped me establish relationships with people. When I was sincere, I was inclusive, and I shared with them, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Um, I need your help doing that. And regardless of where they were or what position they were in the organization, people want to help people be successful. So, so, so you've said a couple things that, um, that are really powerful. One is be the same guy. Don't give people big surprises. Uh, that sounds like it could be a definition of sincerity. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. I mean, uh, you know, people would tell me occasionally, well, Dave, you're a jerk, but you're a jerk all the time. <laughs> Come on now. I don't think that's true. If they said that, they're just, they're just, they're just messing with you. I mean, People knew what to expect. I think that's true. When you, when people are unsure and unclear as to what they're going to expect from you, then that starts causing divide. And so, it, you know, to make sure that we could get past that, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew this is Dave and Dave's showing up every day and I'm going to be the same guy and I'm going to hold you to the same standards that uh, I expect from everybody else. I'm not going to lower my standards until you meet them. And you sort of conduct yourself in a, a very even keeled way. Um, you don't mince words, but you also uh, keep things pretty, pretty straightforward. The other big thing that I, that I wanted to draw a bright line under, because it's not a small thing, your way of engaging people is to tell them you need their help. Now, that's interesting because I often tell people like you got to approach every relationship in terms of here's what I have to offer you. But I also think it's a really savvy move to let people know, hey, you're valuable here. I need you. I think people want to be part of something. People love to follow people that have a vision that they can get on board with. But at the same time, they want to know how they fit into that. To the best of your ability, if you can share every aspect of that vision and share with them, <clears throat> here's how you fit. Here's exactly how you're going to help us achieve this. And that's what makes you a very integral part of this organization. And I don't care, again, if you're loading boxes or if you're managing the books, there's no unimportant jobs in any companies anymore. Every one of them are designed for a specific purpose, specific reason. And the more that you can get somebody to understand how <clears throat> they fit into that organization and where they fit, 
and how they help us drive this company forward. And then we stop and celebrate their successes that they have. And, and I've had people around me help me for years celebrate the small successes that ultimately lead to the large successes. But I think that the more you can get people to understand how they fit into this plan and where they fit, and how their contributions actually matter on a daily basis, the, the more they're wanting to help you achieve your goals too. Yeah, so what happens when you get it wrong? I mean, have you, you, you must have run across people who you were like, uh-oh, this is the wrong person. You do. Um, sometimes people are just better suited to work for other organizations. You know, whether they're disrupting the team through a lack of performance or they're disrupting team through a personality thing. Now, you know, we like the innovation. So sometimes you were going to run up against somebody that was clearly innovative and not thinking the way you would normally think. And we, we had a high degree of tolerance for that. Um, because we, we always joked about the fact that, you know, give us a couple of years and we'll whip you into shape. We'll, you know, we'll make you one of us and you'll be doing it our way. You know, we had to really think about how do we how do we make sure there's room in the organization for people that can be disruptive to what we do today and still be a valuable member of the team. And, and, and I think that we did a pretty good job of that by calling out innovation as one of our four keys. So it made us stop and say, oh, my gosh, OK, we need to listen to this. So, so, so you got to be able to tolerate people who think differently. You said before, inclusiveness is important. Um, if you want to drive innovation, you have to have different perspectives at the table, but not if you're discourteous, right? Um, uh, not, not if you present an image that uh, makes us look bad. So how do you draw that line or, or, or um, how do I mean, because you you have real experience with dozens of people who have reported directly to you, hundreds of people who have fed their families under your command. Ultimately, it's more of a tightrope walk than you make it sound. I mean, you're one of those people who like you do all the work behind the scenes. So you make it seem easy on the front line. Isn't it more of a tightrope walk or is it really not? Well, I think the more you try to walk the tightrope, you're trying to, again, you, you're worrying about pleasing everybody. And, and sometimes you've got to get past that and think about, okay, this is critical to our organization. And, and again, that's why you have these keys. That's why you do the objectives. That's why you have your plan. That's why you have your vision. So we can clearly draw what, again, what good looks like. So people know, and everybody knows when that person's outside the boundaries. We'll do everything we can to help them stay in the in between the ditches but if they constantly decide that they're going to run off out into the field we're eventually going to have to say no that's not the way we do things again you can allow for a lot of uh, entrepreneurial thinking you can allow for a lot of innovation but it's still going to be within the parameters of being courteous being safe um, making sure that you fit the image that we want to fit i really think it's it's not as challenging for me only because we had pretty clear boundaries. I think had our boundaries been unclear or had, had we had challenges, um, one of the best examples I can give is when we first started at the organization, we, had, uh, we started drawing up these safety policies. What we discovered was they were being inconsistently uh, delivered and managed. So you may have a boss that would allow you to get wired with certain things. And then you had another boss that would send the person home on a three-day suspension for the same infraction. 
that was where we really discovered that, oh my gosh, if, if we're really going to build a safety culture, it had to be consistent. It had to be every day and it had to be consistent throughout the organization. So again, you don't surprise people. People know clearly what to expect. They know if they do this, they get rewarded. And if they do that, they don't. This consistency in, in not only messaging, but action is critical to that. Yeah, and, and not for nothing, uh, the safety standards in an agricultural uh, co-op environment, that's serious stuff. Like people can lose a finger or lose a hand or, 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 or worse, right? Yeah, very much worse. You can, you can endanger a number of your coworkers, and I think that was always the concern that we had. Yeah, everything at the cooperative is at given time of year is either going to be dirty and dangerous, and, and you know it's hard work. It's it's hard work. Uh, kind of what you say. That's why we pay you for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. It's it's the work part of work. <laughs> when you say there's behavior you won't tolerate, so violation of safety standards is is one of them. How do you know when someone's entrepreneurial thinking and creative thinking is leading to an innovation that might? How, what, what's the sort of strategic lens? for recognizing an innovation? Well, change, again, has to be part of your organization. I, and I'll speak to change for just a minute. Every year for the last 15 years, we would, because change was something that everybody always puckered up when they heard that, you know, we're, well, oh, by the way, we're going to change things. And everybody immediately, oh my gosh, they get on the defensive. So, so one of the things that we did as a company was on an annual basis, just before we reviewed our strategic plan, which we did twice a year, but on an annual basis, we would have each person almost, but each location would create a list of changes. And, and, and they may be as big as, you know, we build a new elevator, or it may be we, we added two employees. It may be as simple as we move the coffee pot, but but you, you create this list of changes and it ended up being, you know, it started off again, pretty small and it ended up, I think the last one I had the opportunity to look at was 14 or 15 single type pages of changes that we did in the organization. And it just gets people more comfortable with change. So people know, oh my gosh, we did change a huge amount of things. So I, I think, again, it was to increase that level of comfort with, oh, by the way, things are going to change every day in our company. Most of them, we want to be driven by us. We hate it when people were changing things on the outside that we had to also adapt to. We could. And, and it would make you adjust your sales a little bit. But the more that we could, you know, I, I, what they say, the best way to create your environment is to, or best way to, how do they say that, Bruce? What yeah, say I'm that? not sure uh, which which one you're going for. Um, but, but what I'm hearing you say is that you were driving change by embracing the change that was happening. And you were shining a bright light on the change that was happening and saying, hey, if you think everything's the same except when we change it, no, no, look, we're a living, breathing organization that's changing all the time. That's part of who we are. But you must have vetoed some changes. How'd you, like, how would you decide how much command authority to push down the chain? Did you have, um, uh, you know, some people have a certain amount of spending authority. Some people have, uh, well, we're going to we're going to, you can color within the lines here, right? We're going to give you the parameters. But I know you struck a great balance between creating, I'm not, I don't want to say uniformity, but standards. And uh, like, you, like when you guys are coming down the hall, people know it's MKC and it's different from other organizations. But, but, but you managed to create, I don't want to say that everyone looked the same, but sort of like the military, you know, you could see them coming. And yet you also managed to 
create a fair amount of autonomy and creative discretion down the chain of command. I think one of the keys is to drive that authority and accountability to the lowest possible level in an organization. Here's what good looks like. Here's where we're wanting to go. There's times, and, and yes, there's ditches, but there's times that we let the guy that sweeps the floor gets to pick his broom sort of thinking. We, we, we allow people, again, back to that ingenuity, innovation, we allow people to play a big part into establishing what their work environment's going to look like. And you're right, it's going to be safe, it's going to be clean, it's going to be it's going to be here's the way we want things done until you can prove to us that we need to change. And and people did that to us every day in every aspect of the business. There were better ways to do it. And you know, good people that come to work for you that like myself that started at the bottom of the organization and worked their way up, um, they were listened to integral part of the organization because we knew that they took ownership of what they were doing at the time because it may not be the same job they had a year from now but they really took a lot of ownership in that it, it was pretty easy for for those people to drive change and change our organization immensely over the years in from an area that you wouldn't think that, oh, this person is not necessarily a manager, but they're clearly a leader in the organization. They'll ultimately be a manager if they want to be. I think that was how we did it. Well, you said three things that I love. One is the guy who sweeps the floor gets to pick his broom. I mean, that's beautiful. That might be the title of your book. And then the other thing you said, uh, another thing you said was, um, okay, we've got our ways of doing things, but if you can prove there's a better way, then we'll change it. And that's a great standard. You got to prove it. Show me. But, but the other thing you said, which, which, uh, which I have been sort of keeping in my back pocket for this, I guess, for this point in the interview is uh, that you did not start as an executive. So tell your story because it's particularly intriguing given that you're like on the board of trustees of a college and you're, you're, you're the chairman of a, of a financial services uh, organization that's $4 billion in revenue. That Tell your story. Where is it exactly you started in agriculture? Um, shoveling seedweed into the back of trucks. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to find a part-time job in between high school and college. Really good bosses. That was the one thing that I just was blessed with having is, is somebody that actually demonstrated the some of the same values that I try to demonstrate today was being concerned with your employees, wanting to help them be successful. So for about year and a half, I went to college and had no ideas to what I wanted to do. And, and nobody in my family had ever went to college and uh, no excuses. But the manager at the co-op at the time I was working for said, hey, are you enjoying going to college? And I said, not so much. And he said, just come to work for me full time. I'll send you the, all the education that you can deal with. And I did and he did. So I had the opportunity. And that's one thing in the cooperative system is, is you get the opportunity to try many different career paths, whether it's agronomy or whether it's energy or whether it's feed or grain science and you but i had the opportunity to try many of them so i think then it, you know that led into operations and then into sales and then into management and so that was how i started and and, and you know enjoyed every bit of it the one thing about the cooperative system is you're never going to have a boring day 
there's always going to be something at you, coming at you. So and then I did. I retired about a year and a half ago and almost two, two years ago now. And, and, and as you pointed out, still serving on some boards. I enjoy board work because it, it keeps you out of management, but allows you to have an opportunity to look at the inside of organizations and help them figure out what objectives that they need to have, what their vision looks like. So I, I enjoy those types of things that I get to do today. And you're doing consulting on strategy, execution, communications, uh, developing a culture. So you're doing consulting for other large, complex businesses and sharing uh, some of what you've learned. But you skipped over 40 years there. So, uh, so you started out shoveling seedweed into a truck. And okay, you were young, but what's your advice to somebody who's wielding a shovel? I mean, how does that guy get to be like you? You know, for me, it was about being curious, being willing to learn that next thing, being, being willing to uh, be inquisitive, if you will. And of course, I read incessantly, and I actually started that pretty early. Once I got out of college, I understood now, oh, I see the applicability of, of a lot of things that we're doing. So it allowed me to start building my skill set, but not being afraid to get dirty. You know, saying, I'll do that. I think I'd like to do that. Or I think I can do that. And, and, and being willing to do things that aren't your job. You know, you hear so many people say, well, that's not my job. I think that's what led me to, you know, I guess my advancement through my cooperative career was being willing to tackle those tasks that some people would hesitate at. And I'd jump up and just say, yeah. And I had a boss tell me this. I've never had an original idea in my life. I've stolen every one of them. So a boss said, power's taken, not given. And that stuck with me. He told me that pretty early in my career and that really stuck with me which to me and maybe I shouldn't have interpreted it quite this way but meant that I should just start helping that person run their segment of the business and, and, and I did and it worked out uh, for me really well not as well for the other person but but it worked out for me really well so you start so in other words here you are shoveling uh, maybe it wasn't a direct line, but here you are shoveling. You're 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 shoveling twice as much or whatever, and you're doing it with a good attitude. But you're also seeing opportunities out of the corner of your eye, and you're seeing an area that's maybe struggling. And you're and and it sounds like what the boss was saying is, oh, well, go help that person. And in helping that person, it became pretty clear that oh, really, Dave should be in charge of this. I think that sums it up pretty nicely. Yeah. Whether it's a division that you're managing or a location that you're managing or any any aspect of any business, I think a lot of times if you see something that's just kind of plodding along and you think you can either I have an impact on performance or influence a certain specific outcome that you think you're wanting to have, jump in there and, and, and start doing it. Now, again, you have to do it, you know, within the boundaries of being courteous and not being obnoxious about everything. People, again, are willing to let you help. They're willing to help, but people that trust your sincerity typically are willing to let you help. And when you get those opportunities, I'd say take them. Take those opportunities to do that because that's really going to allow you to advance your career and get exposure and, and, and gain a lot more knowledge. Not everyone is is Dave Christensen. I'm guessing that pretty much any time you start helping out with something, people are looking around saying, probably Dave should be in charge of this. <laughs> well, it didn't always happen that way. Not everybody was so willing to accept my help. But again, as the boss indicated, sometimes power is taken, not given. And, and it gives you the opportunity to demonstrate your skill set. 
So what's your perspective on this? You know, better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission, because maybe I'm timid, but I'm like, no, no, you should ask for permission first. Well, I think it's the, the critical part of that is, is again, knowing how much rope you have in most situations. And if you're a good boss, you, you let people know early how much rope you have. Here's where I'm going to jerk your rope back. You know, good bosses will allow you to have probably a little more than what you actually should have. I, I think that's the key to that is making sure that your people know, here's the ditches. You can go right up to this point, And then at that point, I want you to stop and check with me or, you know, check with me before you do it or check, you know, let me know right after you do it. The amount of trust that you have in an individual matters and trust. A good friend of mine, another author told me and convinced me that trust is, is given. It's not earned. He said, you're going to have to make sure that you give trust to people. Nobody can do enough for you that they can ever earn your trust if you're not a trust, you know, if you're not a trusting person. So I think that was key for me was to just, I inherently trusted people and, and it's served me pretty well throughout. There's been very, very, very few people in my career that have ever disappointed me from that aspect. So what you're saying, I think, is it's a pretty good formula for trust that if you're thorough enough to tell people where the boundaries are, then you're doing your part of that trust equation. Yeah, yes. I, I think, again, it's people want to know, you know, where the boundaries are. I, I don't care whether it's kids, whether it's adults, whether, you know, whether it's bankers, it, it doesn't matter. It's employees. People really do want to know what's expected of me. And if you can be clear with what's expected of me, well, they'll go for it. Uh, according to Dave Christensen, you've got the formula. Uh, Dave Christensen, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate the time. In our next episode, I'll talk with Beth Segovia, Chief Operating Officer of Channel Advisor. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.